What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. So we're here in the main FM studios. Once again, it's time for Deep Trouble, and I have, as usual, Dr. Mark Halloran with me. Great to be here, Steve. Well, the last couple of interviews have been rather dark in tone. We've had uh, Professor Peter Doherty talking about his work and his ideas on COVID-19. We've had Rachel Menzies talking about death and death anxiety. And this interview, this particular program, is also really concerns dark material, Mark. We're going to be talking to Benjamin Gilmore. Listeners will remember that we talked to Benjamin Gilmore in the previous season, and that was related to his film work, in particular a film he had made in Afghanistan, Jirga, that was being shown at that time. Jirga was filmed in Afghanistan in the Kandahar region, which is one of the most dangerous areas in Afghanistan. And so we discussed in that interview not only the film, but also the history of Afghanistan, which, uh, as the title of the interview uh, essentially declares, uh, is the graveyard of empires. Mm. There is kind of a link with the interview today between the one we did last year, and that is that Benjamin Gilmore referred to his life as a paramedic in the original interview, saying that he'd kind of uh, become desensitised in a way to death and danger through his work as a paramedic. And in tonight's interview, he also refers back to a key moment from that first interview where they're filming in Afghanistan. They're standing by a roadside and I think they're waiting for a vehicle or a bus and they're dressed in tribal gear and a drone approaches, obviously an American drone, and his adrenaline must have really kicked in there because America at that time were trialling a process by which anybody who looks suspicious would be a target if they are waiting by a road. Under Barack Obama, they had a rule that any group of young men, Afghani men, uh, and he was dressed up as a, a Pashtun villager, any group of men gathering could be a target, were considered essentially enemy, considered to be Taliban. And he talked about that as one of the few moments where he experienced true fear. And the reason that I wanted to speak to him about his experience as a paramedic with COVID-19 was he sent a group email around to the people on his subscriber list. And he talked about the fear that he experienced now as a paramedic going into people's homes in a hazmat suit, treating people with covid but also the focus in the interview is somewhat on a new book that he's written. Uh, he wrote a book called The Gap, which is about his experiences as a paramedic in Sydney. And it's about his experiences essentially responding to emergency events. But the focus of the book is around suicide. In our interview with Rachel Menzies last week, we did alert our listeners to the fact that there's some dark material being discussed and you gave the number out for those people who might find the material challenging. And this will also apply to tonight's interview. So let's have a listen to a very interesting discussion between Dr. Mark Halloran and Benjamin Gilmore. you going with what's happening out there yeah pretty cool we're going to you know suspected coronavirus cases in the cities of course they're going to a lot more being dispatched a lot more of them but you know so i guess because i work in a regional area as a paramedic and we're not seeing as much at this point and certainly you know the australian society has responded pretty well to the health recommendations of how to keep it in check the virus it's meant that we haven't seen the scary spike that we were expecting. I mean, the idea that uh, we've been reclassified as health professionals, so psychologists and social workers and things like that, but 
my feeling was early on going home for the workers that couldn't as well. I think that adage that tends to make sense that people need to go home and stay home because we don't want to overwhelm the system. We've only got so many ICU beds. Um, yep. Uh, but I know when I read your email, that's what caught my attention was that, uh, you know, I, I remember when we spoke, you know, you're someone who's been to some of the most dangerous cities and places in the world, Kandahar and Afghanistan, and mopped up after suicide bombers. But you said that the feeling around COVID-19 had made you feel afraid. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of the first times I very rarely use the word fear when it comes to my own feelings because I, I just don't entertain it. You know, sometimes, of course, you know, you sense it briefly. Well, I certainly sense it briefly in certain moments I have done, but I don't feed it. I don't entertain it. I talk it down very quickly. I think that's partly the way I was brought up. I had a father who was very much believed instead of, instead of goodness and evil. He was more about love and fear and moving between those two points. And so the closer to fear you get, the further away from love you are and vice versa. And so I've always kind of resisted fear and rejected it. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, so it's surprising to me that for the first time in a long time, probably since I was in Afghanistan with a drone hovering above my head, expecting to be killed, have I felt this sense of dread. And it seems irrational if you just look at what's going on in Australia because no paramedics have acquired COVID-19 yet, as far as we know. And we have very good PPE. As long as we don't run out, it's pretty effective, it seems. And so where does this fear come from? Is it irrational? Am I a victim of the rational fears that I've been talking people out of for years, being dispatched to people who are anxious and having panic attacks? But I think it's because of how we're so connected with our colleagues around the world and we see what's happening around the world to health workers and how many of them have been affected, acquired it and have died from it. And I think that's what really brings us home and causes us to fear what may uh, lie around the corner. Well, I remember a line from the pulp fiction horror writer H.P. Lovecraft that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear on the the oldest and strongest type of fear is fear of the unknown, and a pandemic is truly the unknown. Yeah, it's a really great observation, and I'd have to agree with that, absolutely. And it's the unknown, it's just the unseen, it's particles, it's, you know, the virus is it's sneaky, it's kind of like this uh, ghostly thing. We've prepared ourselves, we've trained, we've studied for, and we've got this situational awareness, and we pick up all these clues but they're all things that stimulate our senses of sight and smell and sound. And so they're the senses that have been honed when we talk about situational awareness. But something that's unseen and cannot be detected with the eye or heard or smelt, really, it's suddenly a totally different ball game. And I reckon that even with no paramedics so far acquiring it, the level of emotional impact on emergency workers, and that includes doctors and nurses in hospitals, is huge already, you know, even though very few of them have acquired or and none have died from it. Well, it's a thing around where you kind of dissociate risk from the probability of it. It's like 3.8% in terms of, that was the last that I read, in terms of fatality rates, which is quite high. SARS was about 10%, but far less infectious. Right. And it goes up over, you know, once you're over 70, it's up to 10%, I think, and then mm. when you go up to 80. So it's obviously, you know, you, you could look at it as going, the most vulnerable people, people with underlying medical issues. But then you hear about 20-year-olds dying in New York, and then you hear about a 12-year-old dying in South America. And although you know it's unlikely, those single cases are enough to fill people with fear. Yes, exactly. And news travels fast and it's shared very quickly. And we have certainly in our profession and in the pre-hospital care profession, paramedics, ambulance workers around the world that we view as a kind of family, when one of our brothers or sisters, doesn't matter what country they're in, is struck down or you know, intubated in ICU or dies and that news gets out, it is disseminated within hours globally to the emergency medical service community. And that really is contributed to the unnerving nature of this whole business. It's the going to work and having to put yourself in harm's way. You know, the paramedics, doctors and nurses have to do with something that is unknown. 
Yeah. Part of our training, even people who do basic first aid courses, you don't have to have a three or four year paramedic degree to know this, that the first thing you do when you come across an accident or any type of incident emergency is to check the danger. And wherever there's danger, you have to either remove the danger or remove yourself from the danger. And so that becomes instinct very quickly when you join this job. It's like, wherever there's ever a danger of being attacked or there's word of a patient carrying a knife or there's blood or other body fluids, you always protect yourself from that. And so it's taken us time to completely trust. I, mean, don't, I certainly don't feel like I completely trust our PPE. There have certainly been cases of medical workers acquiring this virus who have, as far as they've been aware, protected themselves with all the available PPE in the correct manner. So it's not a sure thing. Well, I suppose there, there are useful elements to fear as well, like what you've talked about. Fight or flight, of course, yeah. yeah. So the, um, the feeling from talking to paramedics, the people that I know, is that there is the fear around the failure of protective equipment. There's the fear around, or just the, the feedback of, well, you signed up for this. But, I mean, these are people who put themselves in harm's way every mm. day. They've experienced trauma and subject themselves to trauma. Well, it's you interesting know. when you say, you know, you signed up for this. Well, I've heard people say that. I've heard that was yes. the feedback that I had, that the paramedics, the people that I know that it's spoken to, it's stressed out. It's an incredibly strange situation for everyone, but particularly yes. the front line, as you know. And it's funny that they uh, signed up for it, because if you had joined the ambulance service in 1968, you would be signing up for a job that pretty much involved picking up people off the road or from car wrecks and doing your best with a bunch of wooden splints and probably back then not even an oxygen cylinder, but, you know, wooden splints and maybe some oxygen. And that was your job description. And so over the years, though, the, the job has kind of changed. And so you might have signed up for that. And we certainly have paramedics who joined back in the early 70s, even I think there might still be one or two around that joined in the late 60s, who are now, or up till just before this year, going to majority mental health emergencies patients with uh, schizophrenia, patients yes. having anxiety. And so it's a totally different ball game, you know. The roads are safe, the cars are safer, the seatbelts, uh, no drink driving and so on. So you're not seeing a road trauma. The job's kind of changed. So when I joined, it was kind of the transition between going from the traumas and the cardiac arrests to social issues and mental health issues. And that's become more of the latter over time. And now suddenly this year... We're going into houses where there's, there only needs to be just a, a hint or a suggestion that the person is short of breath. Yes. And we have to completely don our bodies and gloves and gowns That's and masks nice. and goggles and hazmat. We're going in like these aliens. And I didn't sign up for that. I mean, I wasn't conscious that that was part of the job. I never imagined that, that would be part of the job. In fact, I mentioned this in an op-ed I did for the Herald a couple of weeks ago that the only time I ever really checked or opened the PPE kit in the ambulance was to check the use-by dates. And we'd right. be throwing out masks and throwing out gowns that were out of date for years. We just wouldn't use this stuff. And to the point where I thought, you know, why are we ordering? Why do we keep ordering this stuff? We never use it. And suddenly it's on and we don't have enough of it. And we're going into cases dressed like something I could never imagine. If, if, if someone said, oh, would you join up to be a paramedic? This is your job. You're going to be going hazmat into all these emergencies and you could cop a virus. I probably wouldn't volunteer for it. You know, I might choose some other way to help, maybe more remote. Well, probably would. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's unforeseeable. I know there's the stories around people hearing the ambulance coming. These are the ones I've heard. And then the ambulance outside the house for 25 minutes while everyone's donning the hazmat gear before they go in. I mean, this is the thing from reading your book paramedics exposed to trauma. In my profession, it's vicarious trauma. This is like trauma in real time. Like a lot of night shift workers, they're going to be more susceptible to heart disease, and Parkinson's disease, stroke, mm. early death. At some point, do you say, why do I do this? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the most worthwhile things you can do in life for your fellow human being involves personal risk and sacrifice and I think that's the way it is and always has been history. And so um, if I want to go out there and help people, I mean, there are certainly more extreme ways of doing that than being a paramedic. You know, I've got friends who uh, help 
run refugee camps in Sudan or wherever, some of these places are really rough kind of environments to base yourself in. I once fancied doing that kind of work. Of course, when you've got a family and everything, it, it changes the priorities a little bit. But, you know, there are those extreme things. Like when I left school, I was working in a psychogeriatric nursing home in the last yes. year or two at school, which is a real eye opener. <laughs> it was mm. one of those locked wards, psychogeriatric nursing homes, and that was very intense. But I was saving up my pennies to go to India because I really wanted to work with Mother Teresa. And I remember volunteering in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. I was sleeping in the Calcutta Salvation Army Hostel on Sutter Street with rats crawling around all over me at night. And it was horrendous. In her home for the destitute and dying, Kaligat, on the banks of the Ganges, poor people that her nuns had pulled off the street in Calcutta and were taken care of. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was really hard work in the heat of summer and really difficult things. I think I was 18 going on 19. And, you know, I just realized that this kind of is part of it, that discomfort. Yeah, it's not something you can do from some kind of luxurious position. You've got to kind of get down to the level of the person who needs you and be in the trenches with your patient. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker, author and paramedic. I thought that when I read the book that there was a code, that you'd learnt something from your family and that, that it was something, what you do, this sort of altruism is something that kind of runs in the family. Well, I think probably. And I do make mention of it in The Gap that on my German side, so I've got some Australian, Scottish on my father's side and then my mother is from originally from Germany yes. and that was where I was born, in fact. But my great-grandfather in Germany was a fireman during World War II in the city of Mönchengladbach and he was a fire chief at that time who was responding to all these bombings at night and these air raids that were leaving a lot of people dead and buildings collapsed and people trapped in rubble when he was pulling them out. And so there was that side of things and on the Australian side of my family, on my father's mother's, some relation to her, I'll have to read that chapter again, was a chemist in the town of Craigieburn, I think you call it. It's down in Victoria, who used to tend to Ned Kelly, the bush ranger, when he couldn't attend hospital because he would come to the attention of the police. So when he was shut up or whatever, got himself in a bit of a, a scrape, he would come to this pharmacist who would patch him up with betadine and tend to his wounds. But there, there are a lot of examples in the family of where my ancestors have somehow been involved in helping people in, in that way. So there's also a pressure that comes with that. <laughs> That's what I noticed. That was what I took away from the book. And it's not something that I've found that similar feelings and ideas from other paramedics that I've worked with have come to talk to me, you know, in terms yep. of psychological help, is that I was always surprised, I guess, at how hard you are on yourself. Yeah, yeah, probably. And I think that a big part of that is around the topic of cardiac arrest because cardiac arrest is like the holy grail of the work. And it was always sold to me and probably safely say quite a few of my colleagues when we went through training that here you have an opportunity to essentially bring someone back from the dead. Their heart has stopped functioning properly, either it's a flat line or it's behaving in chaotic fashion where it needs a, to be defibrillated, it needs a shock to allow it to restart. And that it's the job of your career, these kind of jobs, you know, that these kind of cases where you can bring someone back and there's so much heroics and adrenaline attached to that idea. And then so, so it was really built up. You were given the training. And even before I joined the ambulance service, you know, I was doing first aid courses and I was listening to my instructors tell me how, you know, if you do CPR, you're going to save a life. And this was the cold thing. Do CPR, save a life. Do CPR, save a life. And absolutely, for those who do survive, CPR has been absolutely essential in every case. But, you know, this idea that it was something that we did a lot of and that we saved a great many people, and you'd even hear members of the public say, oh, it's great what you do saving lives. Oh, you're a lifesaver and all this kind of things. And when you reflect on that and it doesn't match with your real experience of cardiac arrest, 
in my case, as far as I was aware, at the point when I wrote the gap, at that point in my career, I think I'd been a paramedic for 10 years, roughly, I could not think of a single patient in cardiac arrest that I had attempted to resuscitate with my colleague that I knew had walked out of hospital alive. Got very a, rare though as well, isn't very, it? Very, very rare. So, yeah. But I beat myself up about this for so long. You know, we'd, we'd work on patients and we'd get them back. We'd get back a return of spontaneous circulation until they reached the hospital and then they'd, we'd find out later on that they passed away. It was very demoralizing and you end up feeling like a failure. Just imagine being in a job where you've convinced yourself and other people have convinced you that this is your bread and butter to bring people back to save their lives. And you can't think of anyone in the case of cardiac arrest whose, whose lives you saved. And the journey of writing that book was a way of trying to come to terms with that and coming out the other end of that and realizing that it's not all about that. In fact, the majority of it is about making a difference in all sorts of different ways. Well, there was a people, moment where a doctor articulated exactly what I'd been thinking the whole way through the book. Yeah which was on every page you potentially save someone's life. Yeah. I remember her telling me that when I was visiting a patient who, towards the end of the book that I was my first patient, I was aware that I'd been involved with resuscitating and was sitting up having toast, having breakfast in the intensive care unit at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. And I said to this doctor, yes, it's, this is the first patient that I can recall ever seeing alive sitting up. And she said, you're kidding me. You've, you've been judging your career, the value of your ability on this one thing. When all through the book, I talk a lot about talking people out of taking their own lives and yeah. going on that journey with them, you know. And for her to say, but it's all those people too. It's it's all those people who qualify for a life save. And every, you know, every medical condition that could have progressed if you weren't there. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Even a little bit of advice, even a bit of wisdom imparted to a, an 18-year-old kid who's starting to take harder drugs and you're someone they might respect. You're in uniform, you're paramedic, you're having a few words with them about it and you know those few words, that five minutes you spend with that person could change the trajectory of their future. I feel like the part that resonated with me and the terrible part is all of the lives that paramedics save. And the book is essentially about the gap, which is a notorious spot that people choose to commit suicide from in Sydney. And all of the times that paramedics would have talked people down from there, that paramedics have a really high suicide rate themselves. Yes, isn't that ironic? Well, uh, I mean, when I've sat with people and we've talked about the trauma of people and children dying in front of them, of doing chest compressions on someone, on an aged person, their chest collapsing and they're having to continue, and the person being utterly traumatised by that and not realising that it's compounded over the time. That cumulative exposure to the trauma that, and that vicarious trauma as well. One of my favourite filmmakers, Mira Nair, who did Slam Bombay, she, which is a film that was greatly influenced by, I heard something that she was saying not long ago about filmmakers having to have the skin of an elephant but the heart of a poet. And I think that also applies to paramedics. I certainly feel that it's a really unique character that paramedics need to perform the work. On one hand, you need to have enough emotional engagement and empathy to be able to imagine what it's like for the person you're dealing with and that what they're going through to be effective with them. At the same time, to have thick enough skin so that you can survive emotionally yourself to do the next case, to work mm. the next shift. Yeah, I mean, at some point it gets unbalanced and either you have a paramedic who's more of the elephant skin rather than the heart of a poet or the other way around and... You know, I think both those scenarios where that balance isn't right, you can end up in trouble. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker, author, and paramedic. I feel like the part of the character trait that drives you towards it, you need to have that kind of need for adrenaline and impulse and ability to react. And that's what possibly drives you towards the profession in the first place. But it might also be the thing that 
you're exposed to these things that other people just generally would never dream of being exposed to. True. I think that's the issue. And that's the tragedy to me. The calls come in and the person's died, they've taken their own life, and you question everything about yourself. You look back and you look for the events and the signs and you wonder whether everything you believe was wrong. Yes, yes. And I totally understand those feelings because I've had those feelings with colleagues. And as I talk about, in the gap, quite openly, wondering whether I could have done more and just going over and over your actions and things you've said. And of course, many times in my career as a paramedic, I've told people, don't blame yourself. This is a choice they make. It's certainly not in their best interest and it's a great tragedy, the outcome, but you can't blame yourself for this. This person pushed you away, they self-isolated and then took their own lives and that guilt and that self-blame is, is only natural for people who have had a loved one or a friend or a family member take their own lives. But even though for years I have given this kind of reassurance to others when I had eight of my colleagues in fact, who I've worked with who ended up taking their own lives. And that's over a 20-year period. I still wonder today whether I could have done more. Where was I? Did I make enough phone calls? Was I present enough with them? Why didn't I see the signs? I think it's only natural to think like that. But hopefully I've got to the point where I am able to function and help other people and, and learn. If I do see my actions as a failure or that I could have done better, take that as a way of improving how I am with others now and my radar for those warning signs is so much more acute and sensitive nowadays because of those experiences. Well there's a moment in the book where you talk a man down from the gap. Yeah and it was that particular case that I write about in detail because I remember on the afternoon after I was having that long conversation with him on the cliff edge not long after, actually, after taking him to hospital to talk to the psychiatrist, I wrote down what I remembered as word for word, the conversation that I remember having with him. And I kept that in my diary for quite a few years until I wrote it out. So that particular conversation is pretty much word for word that I had. But I remember this feeling, and it wasn't the only time I've had this feeling, where someone is telling you, and you might have had this soon enough, where someone's telling you uh, such a tragic story about their life. And being an empathetic person, you feel so deeply for them because of this tragedy that you can almost understand, I mean, you can understand why they are in that position they're in at the moment. That's the tragedy for me of paramedics and, and that work is that people who save so many lives end up losing their own lives, I think, I feel as a function of, of what they did to save other people. Yeah. Maybe there's this expectation and that expectation we can sense. And I'm certainly not blaming society for putting this unrealistic expectation on us, but it's there. And we offer this sense of security and safety and protection for society. But this expectation weighs heavily on us and we put it on ourselves just as much. And so I think, you know, that's when that thicker skin comes in because I have certainly often been disappointed in myself and I know I shouldn't be because we're fighting against fate a lot of the time, against the inevitable, against the natural nature of death, of loss. And we're pushing against the odds here. I mean, realistically, we are really fighting against the odds. I mean, people die and that's the end. Not the end, necessarily, but that's the end of them in that human form. And just to think that we can bring them back from that is oftentimes completely unrealistic. Of course, there are cases where patients do have a good prognosis and they could have, could have a good chance, but the conditions yes. for that and the patient profile is very narrow. You're talking about young people, certain circumstances, certain cardiac rhythms, and of course, the emergency intervention needs to be immediate or very close to immediate within a couple of minutes. So it's a possibility. When you talk about it and you say, oh, I've lost eight colleagues over 20 years to suicide, and in the book you talk about your own near attempt of suicide, mm. doesn't that tell us that we're getting it wrong with what we ask of paramedics? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know what the answer is there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the work is a layer that absolutely 
I think, influences how we don't manage our own emotional, psychological difficulties. I've got theories on why. We don't want to be the patient. We're the help. We're not the people that need the help. We provide the help. Um, it's this kind of psychological position we've kind of, I feel I, I take about myself. We would be the last ones to call an ambulance for ourselves or right. let alone see a GP. <laughs> or a psychologist. Or a psychologist in, in the past. I mean, that's improving, which is really great. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, there's, there's, there's all these theories I have around it and um, reaching out, not very good at reaching out. You know, we're also kind of desensitized a little bit to methods and we've seen a lot of dead people. We've, we know about suicide methods. So we've got access, we've got means, we've got knowledge and I guess it's less a scary idea dying perhaps. When we spoke last time, you have familiarity with death that other people don't necessarily have. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Yes, and so I mean that adds to it. I think well, we're just at a higher risk, I mm. think, than the general population because of those issues. When we're feeling hopeless, we're very unlikely to reach out compared to other people. And so when a paramedic has a life event, the most obvious being a relationship breakup, I think it's very important for the families and friends of paramedics to know that they need to be especially vigilant and, I guess, annoying <laughs> in their chasing of that paramedic friend to make sure that they're not um, self-isolating and falling into the drugs and alcohol and self-isolation that oftentimes is the precursor to suicide and to, you know, really be there for them and to, to reach out on their behalf. I often wrestled with this, you know, writing a book about suicide and saying that it's, it's not about suicide per se. I think it's about the life of a paramedic in inner city Sydney, pre-lockout laws when it was kind of wild and it was, it was a crazy time. And there's yes. a lot of humour in there as well. But its central theme is is depression and suicide. And um, I often thought about, you know, what am I trying to achieve by writing about it? Um, and it was initially cathartic, of course, for me, but what am I trying to achieve for, for others? And that's kind of mainly been answered because since the book has come out, it wouldn't be a week that we go by without a handful of messages from paramedics, doctors, nurses, but, but also from the general public who've read the book responding. I think it's very comforting for people to know that paramedics who are among the most resilient, at least that's the way people perceive us, uh, members of society can have moments of depression or suffer from depression and suicidal ideation and go through these things. I think it's comforting in the sense that, not comforting that happens, but comforting in the sense that... You know you're not the only one. We know that they're not the only ones. And, you know, if anyone's trying to aspire to be some kind of hero as a human and toughen up, I think it's important for them to know that even the most tough members of society feel these things. It's okay to feel these things. And the objective, I think, is to come to a point where we can feel those things without acting on them in a rash way that is going to rob ourselves of the joy that life also brings and can bring, even if you've had pretty much consistent darkness. I mean, this is one thing that, going back to that conversation I had with uh, the chap Michael on the edge of the cliff at the end of the book and wondering, oh, how can I convince this man that life's worth living when he has told me his tragic story from the, his first memory of being in a foster family and being abused all the way through to his tragic adult life? How can I convince him that life's worth living? But I think for you, not for me as the person having that conversation with this individual not to believe that there's a possibility that things could turn around and there could be a transformation would make me just incompetent at the job. I couldn't do the job. It would be, it would disqualify me from doing this. I mean, not that it's the job I'm worried about. It's even without the uniform, it's something I truly believe. For me to lose my own faith in that would make me ineffective in helping this person 
to see that perhaps there is hope for a future. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker, author, and paramedic. To me, it seemed I wonder whether there was empathy in terms of your own experience. And I wonder, we often talk about people doing things, suicide might be one, or even sort of horrific crimes, and we talk about states of mind as though they're, you know, they're clear separate things, you know, and when I read it in the book and, and you're, you're in this terrible distress and you took your partner's scarf, I understood that as somebody who was so distressed they weren't in the right state of mind. I remember reading a writer, it stuck with me for years, he was talking about their love can turn sort of psychotic and, and he said everyone has had the experience of a relationship breakdown or almost it resonated with me and most people, I think, where they've walked the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning talking to themselves and they've appeared crazy to other people that have passed huh. them. Yeah. Because of the dis- in that moment, the distress mm. has made you mentally unwell. Yes. It's almost like the individual in the book that I speak about who found his partner, his wife, she'd taken her own life and he found her at night and ran out into the street wearing virtually nothing. I think he might have been wearing nothing. And just yelling incoherently and was wrestled to the ground and sedated eventually by the ambulance and the police and everything there. And he was in a, a grief psychosis, what they call a grief psychosis. But yeah, I think a depression, you're right, you know, and this is where we start to grapple with, you know, how... I know in the, in the case of one of my colleagues who, prior to his suicide, said some terrible things very hurtful things to some of his closest friends and family. And no one could understand how he could do that. It was totally out of character. But I think that is the point, that it was out of character. He was in this very depressive state. And in that state, he was just not himself. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was psychotic. You know, on that point about writing about my own suicide attempt, no matter how impulsive, it was and fleeting and rare for me was that in the first draft of the book it wasn't included and it was only after I ran the book past a friend of mine a film producer from Melbourne and he with great instinct this chap's got amazing intuition that's why I put it past him he said you're holding back you're not telling the full story and I realized that this time when I'm talking about a colleague who was going through a relationship breakup and depression and I was actually going through something similar. I was yes. having a separation with my partner and I had left that out. I mm. was too private to speak about my own struggles at the time. But as this producer friend of mine said, you know, I needed to have skin in the game and I needed to be completely open and honest, especially if I'm talking about other people's intimate uh, emotional journeys is frankly unfair and Mm. so then I went back to my diaries and I looked at what was happening in my own life at the time and wove that into the book so it became a parallel spiral of depression between my work partner John Dixon and my own at the time which ends up being such an important part of the book and something that a lot of readers have responded to. The book is about loss to some extent. Yes exactly and also that neither of us were really equipped or we weren't really helping each other as much as we could have been because we were so caught up in our own parallel struggles. And I think that contributed to the way those events, those extraordinary and tragic events unfolded. I guess to some extent that that's what I, I felt about the job was that it's not really your fault that that happens because the job takes almost everything just to do it. You know, like I know when you talked about the dark humour and even research to show that dark humour is a way of staying sort of resilient against trauma. But it, it is important, but I think that's what I felt. was I felt like it was just asking too much. Yeah. It asked too much of human beings. And I feel like that's evidence. So I don't know. I'm not saying I wouldn't know how it would be done differently, but I yeah. just think it's the system as it is asks too much. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, again, that, that humour is a way that we're certainly not something that's taught to us. It's not something in the training. It's something that's culturally passed down. Isn't it interesting that it is part of the culture of pretty much all those who work in the area of trauma and death and mm. really heavy events going on? And I think there is a secret there, the key there. There's a, something that the rest of society could take away and maybe incorporate in the way we approach grief and tragedy to try and find the light, find the silver lining, find something within that tragedy that you can latch onto and that will make you laugh, give you a smile. I know I've been struck with things that have been so abhorrent that from shock I've just laughed, you know, yep. just because it's like almost the anxiety. I think that's where humour comes from, but there is no humour without anxiety. Yep. I don't really feel like humour exists without it. So you create tension and then yep. you release the tension. And when something is so sometimes unimaginable, like I remember reading Stephen King's thing that he was writing about saying that he was listening to the news and a guy had walked backwards into a aeroplane propeller and the idea shocked him so much he just burst out laughing you yep. know, because there was nothing else. Like, it's awful and you have nothing left. And what can you do? I mean, what can you do? Yeah, you know, quite a few people do it naturally. I mean, just being present at the scene of quite a few uh, deaths over time. Mm. Um, examples of, you know, you may have had a um, 70-year-old man collapse and he's had a cardiac arrest and he dies and his wife's there. And she'll be crying and it would be very, very sad. And then she'll say something like, oh, um, at least you're wearing your best suits or something and then mm. you know she'll have a little laugh and then you know the other relatives will have a, a little laugh and then go back to crying and it's like find those little details yes. little details bits of light that people in the depths of his grief grab onto to stop themselves from falling too far into it and being so consumed by it that they cannot go on in life themselves anymore you know yeah, well, the comedy and tragedy seem to be applicably linked. I agree. Like I said, there aren't very many options left. You either laugh or cry. Um, that's right. That's right. So you know, that's a cliche, but it's, it's just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not true. Oh, it's a good cliche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're handy. I was interested in your impression of Mother Teresa. I forgot to ask you. <laughs> Yes, well, I really love the work that her missionaries and charity were doing there. I mean, you know, I'm not a Catholic or anything, but I don't support, you know, the Christopher Hitchens kind of view of Mother Teresa where... I was going to ask you about that. About <laughs> the, the, I was going to ask you about the criticism because she had... She was criticised by Hitchens and, yeah. and also by other nuns and nurses that worked in the service about her. But, you know, her, the accusation against her was that she was addicted to suffering. I've said she wasn't a social worker. That's very interesting. Look, I've noticed some things when I was there that yes. seemed peculiar to me. And this is one of the things that she's been criticised for, was that a lot of people that were taken into her home for the dying and destitute, essentially yes. a palliative care facility run by nuns, had they been treated in a hospital, may well have made a full recovery yes. and walked out but instead yes. they were palliated. And so I can understand the criticism. I've seen that, in fact, when I most recently popped back into Carligat when I was in Calcutta last year, I was there for a film festival. I was hanging out with Philip Noyce and Simon Baker and, and I really wanted to get out of the five-star hotel and go down and go back to my first experience in Calcutta, which was yes. <laughs> in Carligat yes. uh, in the slums. And I went there and I signed in as a guest and I went back in there and I said to the chief nurse, oh, do you have doctors visiting? She said, oh, yes, well, we, we have a doctor that comes once a week. And I felt myself kind of interrogating, <laughs> yes. interrogating the nurses about this particular thing. But my feeling is that look at the context of when Mother Teresa began her work. And very early days, no one that really ended up in her home would have, got through the doors of a hospital or would have been able to afford any treatment mm. in a hospital. Yeah. And so she was providing something 
Yeah. Um, even if that was a place to die in dignity where you were getting food and you were being washed, you were being cared for, you were getting clean a gown to wear, you were experiencing the nurturing and the love of being cared for. It's a beautiful yeah. thing because had they not had that, they would have died on the street and been found three days later and given a burial. No one would care. So it was like, you know, yes, it's imperfect. Yeah. Yes, in an ideal world, all those beggars and homeless people would have been well looked after in a great hospital and given everything. But when she started, there were virtually no other options, I don't think, for many of these people. Yeah, well, I suppose that this from, from Hitchens, it was an ideological position. I think so. I mean, you look at who the authors of these critiques are, and they're often people who they hate religion or they whatever you know they hate the catholics or yes. whatever you know and they've just got this kind of they're hell bent on finding something and bringing anyone down yeah i mean i, I think it's ideological too a lot of it mm. i guess there is valid criticism in there i mean it's hard to criticize if you haven't if you haven't opened a, a you know a palliative care in, in calcutta yourself yeah, um, but the question is always could it be you know was there an ideological religious position that that stopped her from using Honor Jesus. You know, the, one of the most yes. invidious comparisons was people dying without pain medication, but then when she got sick and led the heart operation, she was flown to the US. And so I, I hate those hypocrisies too. But um, that's life. Where everyone's full of hypocrisy, aren't they? You know? aren't we? Yeah. I guess on one side there's ideological positions, and on the other there are ideological positions, and ideological positions often get you into trouble. So true, so true. I, I never heard any of the nuns preaching or ministering verbally to any of the residents when I was uh, there. I mean, you know, I have pretty positive experience. I can see where the criticisms uh, would come from and I would probably agree with some of them. But I think what she did in the absence of nothing was extraordinary. Yeah. It was certainly formative times for me. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me again. I appreciate it and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And I really hope your listeners who are interested in this kind of material will also have something to take away from the gap they get their hands on it. Yeah, okay, you take care of yourself, keep safe. Will do. Bye. And so that was the interview with Dr. Mark Halloran and Benjamin Gilmore. Mark, Benjamin Gilmore just has a taste for adventure. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, well, I think it's somewhat, I suppose, in the personality and the nature of people who are drawn towards extreme things. And working as a paramedic requires a certain person with a certain personality and a certain amount of adrenaline goes with the job, I think. Hmm. One of the things that struck me during the interview was the pressures on paramedics, the emotional price that a lot of paramedics pay their profession. Mm. He talks about the number of people that he's known personally that have died by suicide over his career and it's far too high. Any of these professions where it's highly stressful, where people are exposed to trauma and as I said not even just vicarious trauma but actual trauma attending to people who are severely injured or who have died the things that they've seen, the levels of post-traumatic stress disorder that paramedics experience, it's no wonder that the suicide rate is so high. Mm. I was reading an article about even those people who have to vet Facebook posts. There's a class action taking place because a lot of them are also suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because mm. of some of the material they're forced to look at. Yeah, there is a price to pay for those people who are the guardians of our public health and their public mental health. Firefighters, police, paramedics, nurses, doctors, they're having experiences that would be considered extreme to occur once in your life. So if you're exposed to the traumatic death of one person, which could happen in your life, a loved one, this is something that they do every day. And so that trauma sort of accumulates over time and people, they become very resilient to it. But I think that people don't always see what's coming. What precautions are taken to try to safeguard the mental health of our health professionals? 
Well, I think there's counselling services are, are offered um, and I, don't, I think there'd been a culture in some of the services in the past and we talk about that in the interview of not attending counselling or not even being offered in professions like the police force or firefighters because it, I suppose to attend some form of counselling would be an admission of weakness and so there's been cultural problems I think in the past. I don't think there is an answer for it, but one of the things that I put to Ben is that do, do we simply just ask too much of, of these first responders? Do we put them through too much? Mm. Very relevant question, Mark. All right, well, next week. Let's look to next week and what's on the agenda. So next week we'll be talking to Dr. Sue Hewitt-Bell, who is a lecturer at the University of Sydney and is recognised as a leader in domestic violence research. Sue has had almost 30 years' experience in domestic violence and child protection fields and has conducted many studies in these areas. And the reason I spoke to Susan is she wrote an article for the conversation shortly after the death of Hannah Clark and her children. And so I really wanted to talk to her about what she understood about violent men. Well, gee, what a vast topic, you know. You do throw up your hands in dismay when you see again and again and again women being murdered in their homes by their partners. There'll never be an end to it by the look of it, Mark. We just have an inquiry in relation to Hannah Clark's murder that's created a lot of anger in the community as the inquiry was fairly inconclusive. Uh, and the reason that they talk about that is because of our current situation in terms of the pandemic. Well, all that and more will be discussed next week when Dr. Mark Halloran interviews Dr. Susan Ewart-Bell. Join us next week. Anyone seeking mental health support services after this interview because they found the material to be challenging or distressing, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Beyond Blue on 1300 24 636. And Men's Line Australia 1300 789 987. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine.